Galatians 4, verse 21. Hear now the living and abiding word of God. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. All of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer now. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks to you for the precious time we have to hear from your word. We thank you that you do feed us each Lord's Day through this word. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would feed our souls, that you would instruct us, illuminate our minds, comfort our hearts, give us an understanding of the joy of our adoption in Christ, uh, that we would be those that can truly rejoice and break forth and shout because of what you have done in our lives. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this morning I only have uh, notes for the children, so if you got one of those, you're welcome to use them if you're not a younger child, since we are all children of God, as we will study in this passage. And in those children's notes this week, I bolded a bunch of uh, words, which may make it look kind of busy, but my intention was to highlight for those that have the notes, those key terms that are in the passage that will frame our understanding of this passage. Well, this week on, this last week, I should say, on Monday, October 31st, we remembered and we celebrated Reformation Day, that pivotal date of 1517 when the Protestant Reformation began, this movement that has shaped human history up until the present, and we are remembering it because we are remembering the legacy of faithful brothers and sisters who have labored to see Christ's church purified and strengthened. It was through the rediscovery of the teaching of the Bible that the Reformation gained steam and then made such a worldwide impact. And there it were certain portions of the Bible that were especially important during the Protestant Reformation. Certain books of the Bible that had a particular impact. And you, you might think particularly of 
uh, Paul's letter to the Romans and, and Paul's letter to the Galatians. Both of these letters were exceedingly important in shaping what happened in the Protestant Reformation. Now, among the Reformers, of course, the most well-known of them is Martin Luther, right? The, the key figure uh, that seemed to have set everything off uh, there in Germany. And Luther loved Galatians. This was his, seemed to be his favorite book of the Bible. And, of course, you know his wife's name was Catherine von Bora. And Luther once said, The letter to the Galatians is my letter to which I have wedded myself. It is my Catherine von Bora. You might find it a bit odd for him to compare this letter of God's word to his his wife, but his point clearly is that this was a very precious portion of God's word to him. As all of God's word should be precious to us, sometimes there are certain sections of scripture that we especially find precious. Now, why was this book so important to Luther? Well, Luther found in Galatians the exact arguments he needed to respond to the heirs of the church that were prevalent in his day. It was such a relevant book for what he was facing there in the 1500s. Luther observed many parallels between the bondage of the Roman church of his day and the bondage of the false teachers in Galatia. There were so many connections between these, these things. Luther understood that Galatians is a letter about Christian freedom. And he was right about that. Christian freedom, Christian liberty, is a key emphasis of Galatians. And why was Luther so passionate about that topic of liberty? Well, he was passionate, I think, because he had experienced the heavy burdens and chains of the Roman church of his day. For one thing, Luther found himself subject to an abundance of man-made traditions that were imposed upon his conscience. These were imposed as a matter of obedience to God. They were non-negotiables in Luther's day. But in addition to these man-made traditions, as Luther began to understand the real demands of God's law and the infinite holiness of God, he understood that he stood condemned by that law. And as Luther advanced in the ranks of the monastic order before he understood the teaching of Scripture rightly, he saw how impossible it was to meet the demands of God's Righteousness. That's why Luther often had himself, found himself confessing his sins for hours upon hours, never reaching the bottom because he could not even get there. Luther had a conscience that was sensitive to God's holiness, and as such, he, he took seriously every infraction of God's law. And Luther was rightly conscientious about that. He took sin seriously. The people of Luther's day in different ways, certainly did take sin seriously, even though they had sadly added all of these other traditions on top of it. But what Luther found himself enslaved by was the fact that all he could do was to try harder, continue to try harder and harder and harder to attain holiness. And so when Luther understood Romans, when he understood Galatians, he was beginning to grasp the freedom that comes from what Christ has done in his cross and in his resurrection. Now I remind us of all of that because that is indeed the main point of this illustration in Galatians chapter 4 
Paul wants us to understand that if we have put our faith in Christ, we are children of the free woman. We'll explain what that means as we progress, but we, this is to be something that we rejoice in, to be children of the free woman. So let us go into the illustration now of this passage. This particular section of Galatians is considered by many to be the most difficult because Paul draws out all these associations between various Old Testament symbols. And some of these connections and these symbols are not immediately apparent to an Old Testament reader. Now, it might appear to be a somewhat complex passage, but in many ways, I think it's actually quite simple. And the reason I say that is the rest of Galatians explains for us what this illustration means. If we take all of the pieces that we've already learned in Galatians and we bring them into connection with these pictures that Paul gives, it's actually not that complex. Paul wants us to understand what it means to be free, what it means to be the adopted children of God. And Paul wants us to safeguard that liberty, to stand fast in it. That's why we read chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast in the liberty with which Christ has made us free. And so children, this is the first point in your notes. Just to summarize what this passage is about, Paul's illustration of Sarah and Hagar explains how if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we are set free from the curse of the law and the bondage to sin. This matter of liberty was so important to Paul, it was a critical life and death issue. If you look in Galatians chapter 2, verse 4, you'll see how important this, this was to Paul. He, he talked about the false brothers that had crept into the church. He says in Galatians 2, verse 4, This occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage. He says, this was a serious matter. These were false brothers. They had come. They were spies. They were insurgents to come into the church. And they were going to look, to find our liberty, and then take it away from us. This was no minor matter that Paul was discussing. Paul in Galatians 5, verses 3 through 4, he warns them if they accept this particular false teaching, they would sever themselves from Christ and from the grace of God. Galatians 5, verse 3 through 4, he says, I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. Now we'll come back to those verses next week, Lord willing, but I want you to just see how important all of this was. These were issues pertaining to eternal life and eternal death. If they got the gospel wrong, if they replaced it with a false gospel, even though it appeared to be a rather small change in some ways, it was actually a fundamental change. And so I want us to see how important this is as we go into the illustration. Now we'll begin with Paul's question in verse 21. Let's look at Galatians 4 verse 21 and consider Paul's question. 
Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? And that's what Paul was dealing with, was people that were contemplating putting themselves under the law. That begs the question, of course, what does this phrase mean? What does it mean to be putting oneself under the law? Let me summarize it this way for you. To be under the law refers to the one who seeks to gain their right standing with God by means of their law-keeping. It is to submit to the law as the means by which life and fellowship with God is attained. It is seeking your relationship with God by means of what you do. You're going to gain your own standing by means of what you do. But we know that that's impossible, according to Galatians. Paul said back in chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, he says anybody who's going to be of the works of the law, who's going to be under the law in this way, as the means by which they attain life before God, are under a curse. Galatians 3.10, he quotes from the Old Testament, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them. So that's what it means to be under law. You take the law of God and you try to use it as the means of gaining favor and life with God, and you will fail every time. Whereas we know there is a different position we can be in, and it is to be under grace, Romans 6 says. To be under grace is not to be freed from the obligation of obeying God, since Paul in Romans 6 talks about the importance of being slaves of righteousness, but it does mean that your standing with God is not secured by what you have done, but what Christ has done for you. And if you're united to Jesus by faith, all of his benefits, all of his saving benefits are yours. You are declared righteous in the sight of God. You are a child of God. And glory is yours because Christ has secured it for you. Now when Paul asks this question, he says, if this is what you want, if you want to be under the law, have you studied that law very carefully? He says, do you listen to the law? And when he says that, he wants them to remember this this key event in the life of Abraham, the the fact that Abraham had two sons. So he's going to direct them back to the law, meaning the five books of Moses in which the story about Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac and the two women is contained for us. Now, why does Paul always go back to Abraham in Galatians? Well, it it should be obvious, because Abraham was the patron saint of these false teachers, right? Abraham, the first one to receive circumcision, the one who received this sign that God gave them, God gave him back in Genesis. Abraham was important. He's the father of the faithful. He is the key saint, along with Moses and David and others. And so the reason that Paul directs them back to Abraham is to say, don't you remember that Abraham had two sons? See, the false teachers were boasting about their identification with Abraham, saying, we are children of Abraham. The Jews would often boast in that. You, look, you can see that in John chapter 8. And of course, Jesus says, no, many of you are children of the devil. Very different identification for them that they needed to really consider. 
But here Paul is saying, okay, so you say that you're children of Abraham, but don't you remember that Abraham had two sons with two very different conditions? Perhaps you should think about those two sons and what they mean. So now let's read verses 22 through 26. We're going to read this part, first part of the summary of Paul's, Paul's illustration from the Old Testament. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. You'll see that Paul says these are symbols, or in some translations, this is an allegory. And indeed, the Greek word is allegory. It's from which we get our English word, allegory. And what Paul is doing is he's drawing connections and associations between things. And we might look at this and, and we could say, is Paul going out on a very thin limb here? Is this an appropriate interpretation of the Old Testament text? How did he arrive at these connections? Well, I think if you think deeply about what Paul is saying, and especially as we look to the passage from Isaiah that he's going to quote, we're going to see that Paul's not going out on a very thin limb of interpretation. He actually has good reason to draw these connections together. And he's using this as an illustration for us of what the Galatians are facing. And so we look here at these different associations and we, we, we ask the question, what is the connection between Hagar, this woman, and Mount Sinai and then her son Ishmael? How do these things all connect? Well, if we keep in mind that Paul's main point is to illustrate for us the difference between slavery and and liberty, then I think we will understand what he is getting at. Hagar, Ishmael, and Mount Sinai all have this in common. They are associated with slavery or bondage. Now you might say, now wait a minute, now Mount, Mount Sinai doesn't necessarily represent slavery. God's law is not meant to be enslaving. It's called the law of liberty. Yes, that's true. We're going to keep that to the side for the moment. But if we use the law of God as a means of gaining our standing with God, it is slavery. Using the law wrongly is indeed slavery. And Hagar was within Abraham's household a slave woman. The son that she gave birth to, Ishmael, was a slave child in that particular condition in Abraham's household. Now, in contrast with that, we have Sarah, we have Isaac, and we have the Jerusalem above. These beautiful pictures here of freedom. Sarah, of course, being the free woman. Isaac being the child born according to promise. And the Jerusalem above representing the church of God, God's people, who have their hope in heaven, their righteousness in heaven. Now, I think one of the most clarifying points about this illustration is found in verse 23. So narrow in on verse 23 with me as we seek to understand Paul's symbols. He says, But he who was of the bondwoman 
was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. This is very key throughout Galatians. Born of the flesh and then born of the promise. Those two contrasts between how these two children came about. You remember that the false teachers are telling the people of Galatia, the Christians of Galatia, you need to do this and then you need to do this if you're going to be part of the family of God, if you're going to be in fellowship with God. Whereas Paul had brought the gospel to them, Paul and Barnabas had gone to Galatia and they had preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had preached the free grace of God that if they believed in God's promise of salvation through Jesus Christ, they would be saved apart from any works that they could contribute. But Hagar and her son Ishmael are a perfect example of trying to fulfill God's plans by means of human effort. You have to go back, of course, to the story in Genesis. You remember how the Lord had made a promise to to Abraham and to Sarah. He had said, you're going to have a son. Yes, it looks humanly impossible. You're old, Sarah's way too old, but you're going to have a child born, and that child will be the promised one through whom the blessings of salvation and life and all the covenant promises to God's people would come through that child, Isaac. But you remember when that promise was given, how Sarah responded, she laughed at God. She laughed in unbelief at that point. And many years passed from the time of the promise being given to the time of fulfillment with the birth of Isaac. And as those years passed, Abraham and Sarah at times seemed to be doubtful about whether God would bring his promise to pass. And so Sarah comes along and she says, I have a solution. Since the promise has not happened, let's see if we can help God out with getting this done. They were seeming to be living at that point by the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. God had said, I will sovereignly, miraculously bring this child forth, but they're not believing God at this point. They're saying, no, we're going to do something ourselves to fulfill this promise. And you can see how the birth of Ishmael through the slave woman is a perfect illustration of trying to fulfill God's promises by means of human effort. And that's why Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham, and then this child Ishmael was born from that union. But in contrast to Ishmael and the way Ishmael came about, Isaac is the perfect example of God doing the work, right? God bringing forth his miraculous promises. God providing what he said he would do. And this is the way in which the illustration, I think, connects to what Galatians is all about. Those who are trying to justify themselves by doing their own efforts are like Hagar bringing forth this child unto slavery. But those who are justified by faith in God's promise are the free children, just as Isaac was. And so, kids, this brings us to the second point in your notes. Number two, we are saved from our sins not by our own efforts at keeping God's law, but by believing God's promised Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, let's connect this this illustration or symbol back to an earlier part of Galatians. 
Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, this is just like what Paul is saying about Ishmael and, and, and uh, Isaac. Galatians 3, 2 through 3. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? You see the, the contrast again here that Paul wants us to see. And he's saying here to the Galatians, if you receive the most amazing gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit, not because of anything you did, but because you believed in the promise of God, how can you think now that you're going to work this whole thing out on your own? You're going to do all these things by means of your own effort. You're going to perfect yourself in the Christian life by everything that you do. He says, don't you remember that this salvation is a gift received by believing in the promise of God? They hadn't done anything when they received the Holy Spirit. They just believed. And likewise, the child of promise, Isaac, he was not born through human effort to human solutions or human works. He was born according to promise, according to the miraculous provision of God. Notice, in fact, that Paul even says in Galatians 4.29 that Isaac was born according to the Spirit. It's an interesting way of putting it. Isaac born according to the Spirit. And so Paul wants us to see from this that if we believe in the promise of the gospel, we are like Isaac, who's brought forth by the sovereign provision of God, received freely, believing in the promises of God. And so the point of application then for us is this. If you put yourself under the law and its demands as the way to gain your relationship with God and keep your relationship with God, you will be a slave but if you receive God's promise as revealed in the gospel, you will be free. You will be free from the law's curse upon you. You will be free from trying to attain to the perfect requirements of God's commands to gain life, which you cannot do. You will be free from the traditions and rituals of men whereby they try to become righteous. And you will be saved from your sins by believing in the sin-bearing substitute, Jesus Christ. And in Him you will be found righteous before God. And in union with Jesus Christ, you will be the adopted child of God. You will be the recipient of all the blessings that come to the children of God. So let's continue to go on here. We come now to verse 27 where Paul draws again from the Old Testament here from the prophet Isaiah. And you can see here why this prophecy was relevant. We read this earlier in the scripture reading. So I hope you remember some of the beautiful promises of Isaiah 54. If you want to turn to that chapter, you can as you, as you follow along. It was a fitting passage to connect to the, the symbol about Sarah because it talks about the barren woman, right? Sarah was the barren woman. And we'll see that this, this passage makes perfect sense for what Paul is talking about. Isaiah 54 is a prophecy about the restoration of God's people. Like much of those later chapters of Isaiah, it's speaking to comfort God's people. They had been brought into exile into Babylon and God is saying, I'm going to restore you, I'm going to renew you, I'm going to make you exceedingly blessed when I restore you. And that is why Isaiah 54 is so relevant. And what I want to read here 
is Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 3. And Paul quotes verse 1, but I want you to see that it flows right into the promises of verses 2 through 3, which are perfect for Galatians and the points that Paul is making. This is Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 3. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Here, the people of God are represented as this barren woman. She's in this forlorn condition. She's in exile. She's suffering. She's not bringing forth children. There's no fruit. But now the Lord says, sing, rejoice, shout. Why? Because God is going to bring her back. And not only is God going to bring his exiled people back, but then he's going to make them even greater than they ever were. In fact, what he's going to do is he's going to expand the borders of God's people. The the tent picture here is the idea of the dwellings spreading far beyond to the point where God's people inherit the nations. That's a big promise if you're just little Israel, little forlorn Judah in exile to say that you're going to inherit the nations. Imagine you're in exile and you're receiving this promise to inherit the nations. Doesn't look like it, does it? But don't you see how relevant this is to the letter to the Galatians? Where we've learned that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, they are all one in Christ Jesus. This is a promise of the ingathering of all the other nations into the people of God. And that's exactly what part of Galatians is about, is that God was going to do a great work of salvation. He was going to bring the nations in and it was going to be His work his redemption that brought this about. Not, not the works of the people, not all their contributions to righteousness, but the righteousness that God himself would provide. Now, so much of Isaiah 54 is about God's work, but I just want to give you a few more verses from Isaiah 54 to round this out for us. Isaiah 54, verses 11 through 14. Now listen, who is doing the work in this, these verses here? O you afflicted one, tossed with tempests and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all of your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord. And great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Now I want you to ask the question, I want to ask you the question as you look at these verses, who does all of these things? Did the people of God, by their means of their own efforts, bring themselves back from exile? Did they restore the beauty of the city of God? Did they rebuild the temple and make it beautiful in this way, all by means of their own effort? Or Was it God that did all of that? Who taught the children? They were taught by the Lord. Where did their righteousness come from? Well, if you look at the very last verse of Isaiah 54, it says their righteousness is from the Lord. 
Now, if you take all of Isaiah 54, we've connected it to verse 1, that's what Paul did, but all of Isaiah 54, all of these promises, what we see is God's great work of salvation, restoring God's people, bringing in the Gentiles, and doing it all of his own sovereign, salvific working. And so if you take Isaiah 54 this way, I hope you can see that This is the work of God's salvation, not the people contributing anything at all to this great work. Now, and I found another connection between Isaiah 54 and something else very important. The very verse right before the beginning of Isaiah 54, what does it say? It's Isaiah 53, verse 12. Ignore the chapter divisions for the moment because they did not exist in the original. And read Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now doesn't it make sense why they're singing and rejoicing in the very next verse? Because of the sin-bearing substitute, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is saving us from our sins. We cannot save ourselves. Isaiah 53 says very much uh, throughout. If you read all of Isaiah 53, the people of God who have gone astray, who have turned to their own way, they can't do this themselves. They can't restore themselves to right standing with God. They can't keep God's law. They can't do any ritual to fix this problem. It is only the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, who will do this work. And so you can see why Paul wants them to remember Isaiah and the promise of Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 54. And hence how relevant it was then to see the freedom that come to the children of God from that passage of Scripture. Now we come to the final section of our passage today verses 28 through 31, where Paul concludes that we are children of promise and children of the free woman. Let me just read the key concluding statements in verse 28 and verse 31. He says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. And then verse 31 he says, So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Now taken together, we're children of promise, we're children of the free woman. Now we've already learned in Galatians about the blessings of adoption. Paul has said, you are all children of God or sons of God through Jesus Christ by faith. He's made that very clear in chapter 3. But I want to summarize for us, what does it mean in terms of that identity as children of the free woman to be free? What does it mean to be free in Christ? What does it look like to experience that freedom? Well, Lord willing, next week we'll we'll dive in much more deeply into Christian liberty because Paul will say, stand fast in the liberty that Christ has secured for us. But I want to give a simple summary of that right now. And children, this is the third point in your notes. This is just a very brief definition of Christian freedom. Uh, It's not comprehensive. There's a lot more that could be added to it. But for the sake of simplicity, here is point three. We are free in Christ from the law condemning us to judgment. We are set free from the control of sin over us. We are set free from the laws that men make up. 
And we are now free to obey the Lord Jesus Christ with a heart of love. It's a simple summary. I think I have 15 points for next week, so I won't go into those right now. 15 points about Christian liberty. But what is the implication of this? And I want to speak now to a bit more of the experience of these things. It's important as we go through Galatians, which is a, a very doctrinal book, there's, there's a lot of meat to it, that we, we test our experience against it. Now, there, there's certain things in, in Christian faith that we don't experience per se. We, we can't feel our justification. It's an objective reality we receive by faith. But understanding adoption should flow into our experience in the Christian life, how we live, how we think about our relationship with the Father. And to illuminate that point, I want to direct your attention to one other verse that I think is relevant because it actually uses the language of bondage and contrasts it with adoption. So this is Romans 8, verse 15. And I believe it connects well to the point of this passage in Galatians. And Paul here, he says something that is true of every Christian believer. If you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, this is true of you. Romans 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Amen. He says, you didn't receive this spirit of bondage that produces a life of fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption which brings forth the spontaneous, confident crying out, Abba, Father. If you have the New King James Version, you might notice that the spirit of bondage is lowercase and then the spirit of adoption is uppercase, which is an interpretive choice, but it's suggesting that the spirit of adoption is the Holy Spirit sent into our hearts that makes us experience and have confidence in our adopted status as the children of God. Whereas the spirit of bondage is like a disposition or a temperament whereby you're experiencing bondage and fear and anxiety and you're not confident that God is your father. You're not confident that God is favorable towards you. You're not confident that he will be good to you. Now, it's an important question to ask if we are children of the free woman. Have I begun to experience this spirit of adoption? Do I know something of the Holy Spirit's testimony in my heart that I am a child of God? Can I say, Abba, Father, with confidence? Or do I doubt that he really is my father? Now, I assume that no one in this room likes the words bondage or fear. Does anybody like those words, bondage or fear? I don't think any any of us desire such a condition. But the reality is there are many people that that live lives of bondage and fear. In fact, everyone outside of Christ, who is according to Scripture under the law, is in bondage to sin and is subject to the fear of death and judgment. But what I want us to understand is that if we are true believers in Christ, this is our inheritance. Romans 8 and Galatians 3 and 4 make very plain that if we are true believers in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit of God. And that Holy Spirit will testify of our adoption. 
Now granted, our our experience of the work of the Holy Spirit can grow in measure, it can grow in strength, that's why we are told to be filled with the Spirit of God. We can grow in experiencing more peace, more joy, more faith, and more freedom by means of the Holy Spirit. But I want to summarize for you the difference between the spirit of bondage, that that spirit that characterizes children of bondage, children of the bond woman, versus the spirit of adoption. What does it look like in us? So here is the spirit, here's a summary of the spirit of bondage. And this is drawn from a summary of Galatians, but other passages as well. This is my summary of what I believe the Bible would say about this spirit of bondage. Number one, this person is constantly fearful of falling short of God's demands and fearing that the Lord will not show favor to them because of their many sins. This person doubts the goodness of God and ends up with a hostile, distant relationship with the Lord. It is not a position of trust and confidence. This person's religion consists of externalisms driven by a motivation of people-pleasing and outward conformity. We see that very clearly in Galatians. This person also fears the judgment of God and can have no real confidence of God's love toward them because in their religion, God's love is premised upon their obedience, not upon the obedience of another, Jesus Christ the righteous. This person's speech will often evidence this kind of disposition. We, we see this sometimes in our speech where if you hear somebody constantly talking about how they just can't do enough for God because they cannot measure up to the demands of God's law and they're frustrated, they're anxious, you may be seeing a spirit of bondage to fear at evidence. Sometimes we've summarized it these two different ways. Somebody could actually say the very same thing and mean it in two very different senses. One person could say, Ah, I just can't do enough for this hard God. That's a spirit of bondage. Spirit that is thinking in terms of merit. Their language is reflective of merit. They can't do enough for God because they can't measure up to God's law and they can't be convinced of God's favor to them. Whereas somebody else could say, I just can't do enough for this great God. I replaced one word. This loving God, this gracious God, because they're excited to serve God from a heart set free from the bondage and condemnation of the law. They're convinced of God's fatherly love for them. We saw the parable that Jesus talked about with the parable of the talents, the one who hid the one talent. Why did he do it? He says, well, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, sowing where you did not reap. So he hid it. He says, I... You're a hard man. It was his perspective of the master that kept him from serving with a heart of freedom. But the, all the rest of them, it didn't matter how much they did. It was just the, the fact that they loved their master and they were faithful with what had been entrusted to them. And all of them received the same message, enter into the joy of your master. It wasn't a matter of merit. It wasn't a matter of amount, was it? But that perspective of the master was critical now, if you go back to Luther, as our, as our message began with, Luther is exhibit A in his earlier life for the spirit of bondage unto fear. If you've studied his life at all, you know what it was like in his early monastic years seeking to attain his righteousness before God. He did not know the spirit of adoption. 
Luther would engage in radical self-denial to try to overcome sin and try to gain righteousness. He would fast for days on end. He would self-flagellate himself, which is to beat his own body. He would deny himself blankets to cause himself to freeze. He would pray and read the scriptures over and over. He would deny himself sleep, and the list went on and on. He would try harder and harder and harder. And Luther said of this approach to the Christian life, he said, I was a good monk and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils and prayers and readings and other work. He was killing himself trying to attain this, uh, this righteous status before God, but he couldn't do it. Despite all of his efforts, despite no matter how hard he tried, Luther found himself stuck in the confessional for hours on end trying to recite all of his many sins. On one occasion, it was reported that Luther spent over six hours in the confessional just confessing the sins committed the previous day. One day. Much to the frustration of those who had to receive such confessions. But this was a man who understood that he was a sinful man. He understood that the law of God was a righteous holy law, and that it demanded of him perfect obedience, total obedience, no failure, not only in his outward actions, but no failure in his mind, his thoughts, his words, and he was overwhelmed. Here is a man who is experiencing the spirit of bondage unto fear, and that's why when somebody asked Luther once, do you love God? He says, sometimes I hate God. What a scary thing to have to come to say, to hate God? Because this was a God that demanded more and more and more, and Luther could never do enough for this God. That's the spirit of bondage unto fear. But then if you study Luther's life and you read about his life in later years, after he had understood rightly the truth of this gospel of grace, this is a man that had the spirit of adoption. There he's enjoying his wife and his children. He's rejoicing in the great works of God. This was a man that loved life because he had experienced the spirit of adoption, the freedom that came from knowing God's grace in Christ. So what are the effects of having the spirit of adoption? Let me summarize these for us as well. The Christian with the spirit of adoption is set free from the fear of God's judgment because they have not put their trust in their own law-keeping, but in the death and righteousness of Jesus Christ. As 1 John says, perfect love casts out fear. And when that perfect love of God is sent forth in our hearts by means of the Holy Spirit, the fear of God's judgment is removed from us. The Christian with the spirit of adoption is confident of the Father's love for them. They know they are loved with an everlasting love demonstrated through what Jesus Christ has done for them. And so they draw near to God with confidence in their prayers. The Christian with the spirit of adoption is not driven by externalisms, but is fueled by the motivating power of the Holy Spirit. They obey not out of a fear of judgment, not out of a fear of people pleasing, but they are driven to joyfully, freely serve the God who has done so much for them. And from this, the Christian with that spirit of adoption is not a fearful person, 
living under perpetual anxiety about their obedience or their lack thereof, but instead they are confident in the Father's love for them. And so they live the Christian life with a sense of peace and joy. This is what it means, brothers and sisters, to experience the spirit of adoption. Now you might look at that list and you think, I want more of that. And indeed, we should pray for more of that experience because there are times where I think we fall back into a spirit of bondage unto fear. We begin to think wrongly about God. We conceive him wrongly in our minds as that hard master. And it does not go well in terms of our Christian service. It does not go well in terms of our prayer life when we begin to think of God in that way. And so if you are a Christian, this is your inheritance, brothers and sisters, that spirit of adoption. Now, if you are not a Christian, it's important to recognize that whether you currently feel any conviction of sin, the Bible says you are under the law. Romans 3, verses 19 through 20, it says, We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by law is the knowledge of sin. And it's important for anyone who does not believe in Jesus Christ to understand the word of God says, this is your condition. You are under the law. You are facing the judgment of God, and you cannot contribute anything to save yourself. And if you forsake all of your attempts to gain God's favor, you forsake all of your claims to any righteousness to any goodness in yourself and if you believe in Jesus Christ you will be set free from sin you will be set free from the fear of death and judgment and you will begin to experience this liberty that I have described so brothers and sisters let us claim our inheritance let us rejoice in our adoption and let us walk and stand fast in the liberty that Jesus Christ has secured for us And Lord willing, we get to unfold that even more next week. But for now, we can rejoice that if by faith we have taken hold of these promises, we are children of the free woman. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, what a great salvation you have brought about in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for doing through Jesus Christ what we could not do making a sacrifice for sin and accomplishing the demands of the law. And we thank you for the freedom of the Christian life. We are grateful, Holy Spirit, for the comfort and the strength that you grant us so that we are increasingly convinced of the Father's favor toward us. We thank you for the freedom that comes in being the adopted children of God. We're not trying to secure our identity or keep our identity, but we are safe in your love, which has been demonstrated in Christ. Lord, I pray that we as a congregation would experience the freedom of what Romans 8 describes, that spirit of adoption, rather than the spirit of bondage producing fear. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.